Hello Facebookers, hello podcast listeners, welcome to Health Hackers episode number nine. I'm Gemma Evans, I'm a television journalist and presenter here in the UK and this is my series devoted to interviewing some of the most pioneering figures in, in health, wellness and mindset. And today I am with Dr. Anna Machen. Anna is an evolutionary anthropologist and a relationship scientist. That means she knows everything there is to know about the neuroscience of love, why we fall in love, why we're attracted to our partners, why some people are better at relationships than others. And she's not just an expert in romance because Anna also knows an awful lot about father-child relationships and that's why we're at her publishers at the moment because um, next month Anna's book comes out. We've got the book right here, we can show you the book. This book. It'll be back to front because we're in selfie mode. But it's all about um, answering dad's questions if you're an expectant father um, or you're a new dad. Write us a question. I can see all your comments. I've got my laptop here. So if you see me looking down, it's because I'm looking at everything you're saying and I can put your comments about love and fatherhood to Anna. So let's get going because we've only got Anna for the next 30 minutes. So put your questions quickly. Um, let's get started by talking a little bit um, about your expertise because we know you're this expert on love and relationships mm. but how did you find it so fascinating and how long have you been doing it? I've been looking at relationships for about 10 years ever since I started at Oxford University mm. and I kind of fell into it a little bit. I went to work at Oxford with a guy called Robin Dunbar which some of your viewers might have heard of um, and he's an expert in the evolution of social behaviour. I kind of went into his research group and they didn't have anyone doing those close human relationships which are integral to all our lives. So I decided that that's the area that I wanted to go into and I started looking at romantic love, but also friendships and relationships between siblings and also parent-child relationships. Mm -hmm. So this week is a very special week when it comes to love. So we have a royal wedding yes. in three days time. So let's talk a little bit about romance, a little bit about love. Um, why do we fall in love? Well evolutionarily we fall in love because it's the motivation to actually stick together and in fact raise our children so evolution wants you to reproduce and then stick around and raise those children to survival so that they themselves reproduce okay and love is kind of the biochemical bribery to make you stick around through all the difficult times that you might have in a relationship uh, and make you achieve that evolutionary goal so at the very basic level that's what love is but obviously humans are amazingly complex uh, species and love has become so complicated in terms of what feeds into the love experience for people so what so if we're all designed to reproduce okay mm -hmm. so we're all looking for our ideal reproductive partners yeah so what are men looking for and what are women looking for? Okay, so if we're looking at heterosexual relationships, then what men are looking for are they're looking for signs of fertility and good health because what they need to do is if they're going to take themselves out of the mating arena and dedicate themselves to one woman, they've got to make sure that that person is actually going to be capable of reproducing. So they're looking for signs of fertility, they're looking for signs of good health so that she is actually healthy enough to raise the children. And they're also, really importantly, looking for signs of fidelity. So the fact that this woman is going to dedicate herself to that man alone. So are there any physical characteristics? There are, particularly in relation to fertility and health. So the massive, the big one for women is your waist-hip ratio. And we, so men are very attentive to the waist-hip ratio It's the women. first thing they look at. Oh my, really? Yeah, a, a group in America did an amazing eye-tracking experiment where they put eye-trackers on men to see what they first looked at when they met a new woman. And oh wow! not knowing it, they actually the first thing they do is they quick glance at the waist and the hips and they're doing this unconscious calculation in their head. It's as to the, what this the calculation of how fertile this woman yeah, might be. Yeah, because a 0.7 
is the ideal. 0.7 is very strongly related to fertility, so circulating oestrogen, but also um, signs of good health. So people who have a 0.7 have lower risk of diabetes, heart disease, wow. certain forms of cancer. Uh, and therefore, men have evolved to be able to spot a 0.7 and to find that universally attractive. So then what, what are the women looking for in their men? So if the women are looking for a long-term relationship, then what they're looking for is that investing male. Are they always looking for long-term relationships? Yeah. Oh, really? Humans are interesting because we, can, we have what's known as a mixed mating strategy. So we can have short-term and long-term relationships, even at the okay. same time, should you want to. Very complicated, but you could. Um, and we are capable of having both. And what you look for in a partner depends on whether you're looking for that short-term or that long-term. So talking about the men, looking yeah, at the women, yeah, yeah. and fidelity being really important in long-term relationships, if we're looking at short-term relationships, then what's actually that fidelity thing goes out the window, because in fact men like women in short-term relationships who maybe parade their sexual experience. Right, well, so what does that look like? Well, it's, it's women who talk about, a lot about their relationship history, appear to be very sexually experienced. Right. Because actually what the man doesn't want to happen is that this woman is actually trapping him in the short-term relationship and trying to keep him around for a long term, giving him a little bit of an assessment. Okay. So, so, you so fidelity saying, drops off. Fidelity drops off there. And you were saying, though, what women are attracted to in men for their reproductive So purposes. for long-term relationships, you need that investing male because it's okay. really energetically draining as a woman. You're the one that invests most of your energy oh, in reproducing, yeah. as those of us who've had children know. Um, and therefore, you need that investing male. So you're looking for signs of resources, signs of commitment. You want that guy to stick around if you're going to take the punt on having so his baby. For what, what, in an evolutionary terms, what does commitment look like? You just it's really some... hard to assess yeah. commitment because it's, it's more a probabilistic thing. So there's no physical indicators of commitment, mm -hmm. but it's what the guy talks about. So okay. is he talking about the future? Is he talking about a unique and exclusive commitment to you? Is okay. he talking about children? Is he offering gifts? Is he investing most of his time and energy in you? Okay. And he's, he's sort of dropping all other relationships. So a woman actually has to take a bit of a punt mm. on whether or not the guy's committed. Are there any physical attributes that women are drawn to without even knowing they are? Yeah, so the big one is the shoulder waist ratio. Oh wow, okay. Which for a man, the ideal is a 1.4. So that's your classic. Try broad shoulders, narrow waist. Broad shoulders, right. And it's okay. an indication of athleticism, of strength, of a good immune system, and all of these things. Men who, for example, are more athletic are able to protect, so he needs to be there to protect his family. But also, it's a sign of things like higher circulating testosterone, and there's a link between men who have higher testosterone and reproductive and social success. So it's a sign that he's a powerful man, he's high up the hierarchy, he's got that status. He can be a good dad. He can be a good dad, he can commit money and time to that family. So if we're all driven to reproduce, why is it that some people don't want to have children? Because humans, whilst we have these unconscious drives, uh, which are directed by evolution, we have this massive brain, this massive conscious brain, and therefore we are able to override some of those drives. So we can take the conscious decision not to have children. But interestingly, even though a woman or a man might say, I don't want children, mm. if you look at who they pick, they're still following that evolutionary set of really? rules because that's an unconscious so driver. So it's this studying love is very complicated mm. and that's why I love doing it because there's so many different things that feed in, both your, both your unconscious drivers but also those conscious yeah. drivers that you take decisions which maybe override what naturally evolution wants you to do. Um, would you say we're animals, humans are mm. animals, when it comes to love and romance? 
that's another really big question. So is human love different to animal? Because animals do love if we divine love. Really? By, absolutely. Oh. By that evolutionary drive, by, you know, particularly monogamous species, that commitment to each other, those feelings of passion and protection that actually exist in the unconscious limbic area mm. of your brain. Then yeah, animals love. But so human love is, is different because we have many then layers of conscious yeah. contemplation of Logic that love, of creativity in. related to love, mm. so poetry and music and, and cultural inputs and historical inputs yeah. and political inputs. So it's, it's a much more complicated phenomenon. But at the very basic level, we behave in exactly the same way as any other, other animal And does. as animals, are we meant to be faithful? I know you said women are looking for that faithful kind of guy. Yeah. But are we are we meant are we made to be faithful? It's a really tricky one. We're made to be faithful in terms of um, reproductive parental parents. Yes. So um, the best thing for a child is that both their inputs, both their parents, stick together for a reasonable period of time to input into that child's development. But then there's a difference between that and what we call sexual fidelity. Mm. So, so you could be actually a, a, a polyamorous relationship, or you could be monogamous in your parenting relationship, so you only choose to reproduce with one person, yeah. but you could actually have many other lovers, for example. So human love is very, very complicated because it doesn't necessarily just exist in the monogamous yeah, way. Yeah, and then why, I wonder, are, are we born to be jealous? You know, if you think, well, we're, we're able to have... Yeah multiple mm. partners from an evolutionary mm. point of view then why do we have this inbuilt emotion of jealousy because for example if you're a woman and you're jealous of maybe um, an interaction your your partner's having with another woman mm -hmm. it's because you're worried that his investment particularly his resources are going to be spread oh my gosh yes. they're not just going to be directed at you and your children and therefore Yours. you have this jealous drive to protect your relationship so it's so it's, it's, it's kind of an unhealthy protection mechanism That's and obviously you know in extreme cases it can be very unhealthy but jealousy is a natural kind of um risk warning that oh, hold on one second his attention is going somewhere else yeah. or her attention is going somewhere else okay let's get into some <laughs> questions we've got so many questions here um, joanne says does anna believe in love at first sight no oh really? i don't i'm really oh, sorry joanne. what is it just is it just lust yeah so the feeling you have with, with so-called love at first sight is in fact lust at first sight. So when you are first attracted to somebody, that is an unconscious driver. That's very much driven by evolution. That's the result of you seeing this person, doing all those little assessments on their physical appearance, and it going ping in your brain, yeah, this is a good one. This is someone I'm attracted to. And you've got releases of dopamine and oxytocin in your brain, making you, lowering your inhibitions to going across and forming a relationship with that person. Dopamine, which is motivating you to do that. It's a reward chemical. It's all entirely unconscious. And that is lust. Lust is an unconscious driver. And then when does it become love? That's really tricky to say. And, and you That's could, get, you could, yeah, you could get another you know, specialist <laughs> in the area here who would probably completely disagree with me. But I would say love is a much deeper more profound and it's an it's got that unconscious element but it's also got a lot of conscious consideration around it as well so it's about See. maintenance and trust and empathy all of which exist in your neocortex of your brain and love is an attachment relationship so attachments yeah. are are very deep intense relationships you don't have many in your life but one of the ones you do have is with your lover and and therefore i would say that was love and what you tend to see with people mm. is if they've had lust at first sight and then they do go on to have a long-term relationship, it's quite easy to rewrite history and go, actually, I felt this intense love the first time I saw this person. You probably didn't. But there's just, yeah. But it's mm. that sort of looking back in retrospect and, and rewriting it a little bit. Uh, Rob would like to know, is it possible to make someone fall in love with you? 
Well, if I knew 100% that, then I'd be very, very rich. Um, n no, but you can increase your chances. Oh. So there are certain behaviours you can do to appear more attractive to so someone. So what could Rob do? Well, I, I, I haven't met lovely Rob. Attraction. I don't know what he looks like. But for example, you know, if he has got a lovely broad shoulder and narrow waist thing going on, so first of all, let's emphasise those. Okay. Okay. Could he get some shoulder pads? Yeah, he could. He could bulk <laughs> it up a little bit. So bulk that up a little bit. Um, but there's also behavioural things you can do. So one of the things that releases those bonding chemicals, which help to lower inhibitions and start that that bond oh, forming between yeah. two people, there's lots of behaviours you can do. So appropriately, but touching somebody, laughing with somebody, laughing produces beta endorphin, and beta endorphin is is an opiate. It's addictive, and it makes you feel amazing. And if you laugh with somebody, you both get a hit of that. And because you're doing it together, it ramps up so the effect bonding. of that. So, so go, you know, first date, go to a comedy club, something like that. Get those endorphins going. Go dancing. That releases yeah. endorphins as well. Um, the other thing you can do is we know that if you do it in synchrony, as I've said, it increases the effect of that on you and on the other person. Right. So, you know, if you can do something in synchrony, start mirroring somebody's oh. behavior, start mirroring their voice that will increase the likelihood that they will like you. But that's really as far as I can go. That will give you a yeah. little bit of a head start, but you can't well, force somebody to fall I, I did hear once that if you can experience a fearful situation with someone, that they're more likely to be attracted to you. And so there was a suggestion that, suggestion that you would go on a first date to like a, a theme park, yeah. thrilling ride. Yeah. Is there any truth in that? Make someone um, fall in love with you I, by scaring them. Not really in terms of triggering anything, anything neurochemically that would help. You'd probably get a hell of a lot of cortisol and adrenaline scooting around there. So I don't think in terms of that, it might just uh, bring you closer together because you've got that kind of grouping self-protection thing right. going on where if we group together, we might be able to protect ourselves from this risk, but that's probably about as far. I see. I wouldn't suggest going on a roller coaster. <laughs> Um, can we talk a little bit about pheromones? Because I heard that yeah. you, you fall in love with somebody by the way that they smell as well. Yeah. Is that true? Well, it's not necessarily a pheromone. Pheromones is it's one of those things that we're never really quite sure what a pheromone oh, okay. is. Then what so, is it? so the art, what it is is that women in particular can smell genetic compatibility. Mm -hmm. So what you want in choosing your partner is somebody who's actually as genetically distant from you as possible. So you're as far away from inbreeding and all the negative effects that has. Right. But in particular, one of the things you can smell is the set of genes that underpins your immune response. And it's called the human leukocyte antigen. And women are capable of smelling somebody's HLA uh, complex actually on their natural smell. So you've probably heard of the t-shirt test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get a Remind load us though. Yeah, okay, so get a load of blokes, take mm. 30 blokes, Give them a t-shirt to wear for 24 hours. Yeah, that's yeah. It. No deodorant, no aftershave, no showering, nothing. Wear the t-shirt for 24 hours. So you've got your natural smell, yummy. Then you put it in a plastic bag, put them separately, and you get some poor unfortunate woman to smell them all. And then you say to her, which one smells most attractive to you? And if you were then to test her and the guy who she thought smelled was the most, what you will find is that they are, in terms of the HLA, the most genetically distant from each other. And that's important because if you're going to reproduce this person, you want your offspring to have the best, broadest immune response mm. they can so they can tackle any illness that hits them. And that's why women, women seem to be able to smell it much more than men. And that's probably because women have more to lose by getting pregnant by the wrong person. Yeah. If you think. Yeah, so gosh, yeah. men don't seem to be so good. So there's a show on MTV called Catfish. Um, yes. that my husband and I enjoy watching but you get people on the show who say I have been in love with Ryan in Illinois for 10 years mm. but we've never met mm. so 
can you really be in love with someone you've never met? And she's not smelt him either, so she yeah. doesn't even know if they're yeah. genetically compatible. Yeah. I would say no. You can't. And um, what it is, is it's something to do probably particularly with that person's psychology and, and, and the image they've built up of this person. So maybe they've built a fantasy image of their perfect person perfect and they've actually fallen in, for, in love with that person. It would be interesting when they met to see whether it actually did kick yeah. off or not in terms of love because no, you can't. And, and particularly if you're simply communicating using one medium such as online or text or something like yes. that, you're getting very little information about that person mm. and therefore you know when we're in the room with someone we use all of our senses to assess that person as a mate and then if you're trying to do it online you get little information to be able to so make that assessment. In that case would you not recommend the online dating? It's not that I wouldn't recommend it, I mm. think it's a brilliant tool and there are many many positive things about it particularly in terms of broadening your pool yeah. of, of opportunity but what I say to people is use it as a tool, don't let it be your only way of meeting someone and if you do find someone who you think might be a possibility, get in the room with them as quickly as you can. So you because use it as an initial stage, absolutely. then go and smell them, give them a good old honk, laugh with them. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, assess them, turn that brain on. Half a million years of evolution has made your brain a mate assessing machine and you need to let it go and do that. Oh wow, this is so fascinating. So we've got another question, uh, Chloe. Uh, now you mentioned oxytocin, mm. and is oxytocin a, is a feel-good hormone for it, women? It's uh, it's and actually across both sexes. So it's just oh. a general human hormone, oxytocin. So Chloe wants to know: Do men release oxytocin mm -hmm. in the same situations as women? Apart from childbirth, <laughs> yes they do. Oh right. So oxytocin initially evolved to induce labour. That's what it's actually there for in terms of a physiological reason. So that's why for a long time it was thought to be a female only hormone because mm. it's there at, at that moment. But actually since I started researching 10 years ago it's become very very clear that no. Oxytocin in terms of your relationships and in terms of a bonding chemical just as prevalent in men as it is in women. Um, it's evolved, you know, in forming all the social relationships that a man will form in the mm. same way it is with women. So exactly the same. I, I heard though that it's better for women to experience an oxytocin boost when they're stressed. So having a hot bath would boost their oxytocin or cuddling a baby. Cuddling a baby, cuddling really pretty much anything. So if you mm. cuddle your dog, you get an oxytocin hit. Um, so I'm currently um, researching my next book and that's actually about, about love and looking at you know bonding and attachment with pets. So you know you get releases of oxytocin in lots of different circumstances. Um, but a good hug is a, is a, a good, good hug. A good hug. hug. Uh, why are some people better at, at relationships than others? Well, that's, <laughs> that's quite a deep question. There are many different reasons. The two things that seem to feed into our individual experience of love and how good we are at it are there is a genetic component and then there's obviously that, that environmental component. And the environment that's particularly important is the environment in which you grew up. And mm. particularly your relationship you had with your carers when you were a child. That seems to feed in very strongly to how we then experience our relationships when we're older. So if you have a secure attachment when you're a child to your carers, then um, you tend to go on to have very healthy, good mm. relationships when you're older. Not just with your lover, but with your friends. If unfortunately you had maybe an insecure attachment, then you can struggle more when you're older to deal with relationships. And quite often you'll have an insecure attachment style in your adult relationships. So you might be fearful of being in relationships, mm. or you might be what we call a dismissive avoidant. So somebody who actually finds intimacy very, very difficult and will actually try to avoid relationships as much yeah. as possible. Or you might be very anxious and preoccupied and worried about being left. So it's, it's partly environmental, and then there are some genetic underpinnings also to, as to how good you are at, at forming and maintaining those relationships. So John would like to know, um, 
what are the best steps to avoid a breakup? Oh, that's a tough one. Because obviously there's two people driving that one. Yeah. If you're trying to prevent that, what I tend to say to people is, there are several things that I say are behaviours that are good for maintaining a relationship. And you do have to maintain a relationship. To get those neurochemicals flowing, which underpin it, you need to put the effort in. Okay. So there's lots of things. So again, it's, it's about doing those activities with your lover that induce that release. So, you know, try and carry on cuddling. Try and carry on touching. Try and carry on laughing together. Then there's other things which are more psychological. So... Um, meet new challenges together have a new experience which will maybe challenge you both and being in that in that novel situation tends to bring you closer together try and increase what we call your your emotional disclosure so couples who are really really close are people who are happy to be emotionally vulnerable in front of each other oh really and unfortunately there's a certain amount of genetic underpinning to how good you are at that but you can learn to be good at it so open yourself up tell them your deepest fears and ambitions and fantasies and if you're willing to do that that brings you much much closer to oh, that, that person so there's various yeah. things you can you do don't to try keep things just be open be open be be your truest self uh, one more question on relationships because we want to talk about fatherhood okay um it is the week of the royal wedding mm -hmm. You did mention earlier about the, the characteristics and traits that women are attracted to in men and men mm. and women. When you are um, looking at couples randomly out there, whether they're your friends <laughs> or in yes. the media or a royal couple, yeah. did you find yourself automatically analysing them somewhat? I suppose I have a natural tendency to sort of sort out, uh, try and assess what their mate value is when I look at them. So yeah. when you look at Meghan and Harry... How, how are you assessing their mate value there? Well, his is obviously cracking, isn't it? Because basically, in terms of protection, he has an army, so that's a good one. And in terms of resources, obviously, yeah. he, um, he's uh, really up there. But actually, he's, in his interviews he's given, this is why reading Hello is a good thing, I just like oh, to say. Okay. Um, in the interviews he's given, he shows a lot of signs of commitment. So he's often talked about wanting children, about wanting that long-term love, and how difficult it is to find that in his yeah. position. So he's giving off all the right he's signals right keys, for that long-term relationship. In terms of her, you know, she I, I haven't been able to measure her uh, in terms of waist-tip ratio, but I would say she's looking pretty good. Um, you know, she's obviously very, very bright. She, again, has made noises about wanting to be committed yes. and wanting to be in that yeah. long-term relationship. Well, she's given so, up her So in terms of mate value, science. they are, you know, pretty, pretty equal. They're doing pretty well there, Say, well, so. we wish them lots of luck. Absolutely. Um, right, let's talk about dads. So you yes. spent 10 years looking at father-infant yeah. relationships, yeah. how dads change, what happens to their brains. Yeah. So w what are the changes that happen when a man becomes a dad? Because we don't really talk about this. We don't stuff. talk about it, and that's kind of why I researched it, because as an evolutionary anthropologist, I thought, hold on one second, evolution doesn't let these major figures, such as the father in our society, evolve without them having a reason to be there. Uh, and no one had ever looked at that, so I decided that was going to be my gig. Um, lots of changes so they have hormonal changes for example right. so when a man becomes a father for the first time he has a drop in testosterone okay. and what that does is that shifts his attention away from mating to parenting because testosterone is great if you want to find a mate it makes you a real mate finding machine as a man but if you want to be a good parent and invest and stick around it's not so great if your eyes start wandering so it drops and it never returns to its pre-fatherhood level, never. guys. Never. Wow. Never. But the positive of that, because men just go, but then I'm emasculated, it's awful. The positive is, 
by lowering your testosterone, you increase your oxytocin and dopamine experience. So you get a most amazing euphoric kicks when you interact with your child. Oh, and, and does the, the lowering testosterone also make them more caring? Yeah. So oh. the lower testosterone you have, the more sensitive a father you are. So the more responsive you are to your child's need, the more empathetic you are. So men with lower testosterone tend to be much more sensitive fathers. Is, is there such a thing as postnatal depression in men? Yes, unfortunately oh, there is. wow, really? Um, so for a long time, the argument was that because men didn't have these hormonal yeah, fluctuations, yeah. they couldn't possibly have postnatal depression. Um, obviously, testosterone uh, is a protector against depression. So when you have a massive drop in it, it can bring on postnatal depression. There are other factors that feed into that. Um, so in our society, there's quite a lot of tension for men now between being involved, but then also still being the wage earner and still bringing the money yeah. in. And that can cause quite a lot of psychological distress. So about 10% of fathers will experience postnatal depression. One in ten, that's still really high. Well, if you think 14% yeah. in women, it's it's up there. Four, 14. It's 14% in oh, women, it's 10% in men. So they're pretty much on a par. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, it just shows how we need to be talking about this. Yeah. Um, Richard has a question. Does Anna have any tips for dads to make sure your child turns into a happy, healthy adult? Wow. So I can't absolutely <laughs> guarantee that for you, Richard. Um, but yes, there are. There are certain things that are really important when you're interacting with your child. One of the most important things is to get that real mind connection between you and your child so you can start doing this when your baby's actually in the womb so talk to your baby sing to your yeah, baby talk, touch the bump talk to the tummy. it can feel all that you can form a prenatal attachment to that child so it's really important to start then it doesn't matter what you say you know feed the, read the football results whatever it might be yeah. just let let that baby hear your hear your voice once the baby's there touch is so important so skin to skin contact as much as you can possibly get as a father really kicks off that oxytocin between the two of you um, so touch is really important baby massage is amazing um, as the baby gets older playing with your baby it's really important uh, in male child bonding for there to be lots of rough and tumble lots playing of play. lots lots because that is how interaction is how a father forms a bond because oh, they don't okay. have all those lovely hormones of pregnancy so they have to do so it. if it's interaction then so for women it's the hormonal bond they get a massive massive kickstart with pregnancy and childbirth because childbirth is all about oxytocin it's all about beta endorphin because it's not your natural painkiller yeah. so you get that massive head start whereas men have to put a little bit more work in it's all about interacting rough with and your tumble baby. and is that so special because it's it's helping the child be a bit more fearless and to yeah. know that he can so, so one of the jobs of a dad is actually to help the child deal with risk and challenge. Okay. And so rough and tumble play, you know, aeroplaning them around the room, bouncing up and down on the trampoline, tickling S them so they swing me around. Exactly. Lot, yeah. There's you know, there's a bit of <laughs> fear associated with that. But that's great. That's great for bonding and you're both getting massive endorphin hits from doing that and you're starting to form that relationship. So what I would say is interact one on one with your child, get that get eye contact. Get that, that two-way communication going, even if it's just cooing. Mm. It's, it's really important that you spend that time just, just exclusively with your child doing that. And it doesn't have to be for very long. Really? No. So, so if, if a dad was at work all day yeah. and then came home and just yeah. spent 20 minutes? Yeah, brilliant, perfect. So exclude everything else, put the phone down, don't let anything else interrupt you, and just focus and really get that meeting of minds. Is there a, a stage at which you would recommend a man is at home the most to create the best outcome. So for example, they have this two week paternity, mm. but would that be better placed kind of when the baby's six months old? So then there's more there's a real Yeah, there's a real debate about this. So when I, the fathers I've studied often said that, that they, they love getting paternity leave, but actually in a way it'd be lovely if you could split it. 
because whilst maybe one week at the beginning is important, they actually don't get much of a weigh-in with the baby, particularly if mum's breastfeeding, and breastfeeding at that point takes hours. Yeah. There's not a lot you can do. There's that connection, that two-way connection is hard to get. So actually quite a lot of dads say, I'm glad, you know, one week at the beginning, making cups of tea and wrangling visitors, then, you know, six months, you know, some more time when you can really start building that relationship. Because, yeah, and that's obviously, now we can have shared parental leave. Mm. You know, there's lots of issues around that, but if you can take yeah. it, then it's a real benefit for you in terms of building your bond. Uh, one last question on dads. What would you say is the biggest mistake a man could make when he becomes a dad? To think that you don't matter. Oh. To think that yeah. actually, ultimately, mum and the relationship mum has with the baby is the most important thing. Dads evolved for a reason, and they, they evolved because children need that input from both parents. And it doesn't have to be biological dad, it could be stepdad, adoptive dad, whoever it is, just dad, the guy who's there you really matter and you have a unique input into your child's life and you, you need to take that and be reassured by it but also be empowered by mm. it that you are not a secondary parent that you are equal and you you really matter big cheerleader for dads here and <laughs> um, remind us of the book the book, the book next which week, will obviously be back next month life of dad the making of the modern father out on the 14th of june 14th of very june. excited all about everything we've discussed and so much more um, anna where can people find you if they want to see you give a talk or well, I'm giving website. various talks. So I'm giving a, a talk on the life of Dad on the 30th of May here in London, and there's details on my website, which is annamachin.com. And can people follow you on social media as well? You can indeed. I'm on Twitter, so it's at Dr. Underscore A. Machen, and lots and lots of info there on my research, but also that of my colleagues, oh, yeah. and talks, and all those sorts of things. And lots more on love as well. Loads on love. Um, Anna, thank you so much. Thank and you. Facebookers, thank you for all of your questions. If you like this episode, hit the like